you know, I don't know what um, culturally relevant church is good, bad, or otherwise, but nothing, well, I don't know, maybe there could be some things that touch my heart more than when the body just starts to do what God's given it to do, when the church starts um, acknowledging their giftings and then operating in them. It's not the desire of the Lord. It's not the mandate of Scripture. There's no place that we see that God takes one person, pours all the gifts on that one person, and everybody else just sits and listens to what that one person has to say. Only that's happened once in all of history, biblically. And he was Jesus, right? He, he, he had every office of the church was encompassed, encompassed, encompassed was in him. He, he was... Um, apostle he was the prophet he was the evangelist he was the pastor he was the teacher he was everything the power of the holy spirit was present inside of him and they all cried when he started to explain to them that he wasn't going to stay that he was going to go and they cried even harder when he started to explain to them how he was going to go but he said if i don't go then the the helper won't come And, and when the helper comes then his body can be magnified by millions and billions and each, every one is a finger, is a thumb, is an elbow. I was going to say his hair. I'm not sure what that one would be, but I know I don't have that gifting. The point is, God has gifted everybody, everybody to be a piece of Jesus, connected to the head through the Holy Spirit. And I just love it. I just love it so much when that rises up in the church. Um <sighs> So I'm happy. I mean, oh, I'm not looking at the clock. I'm not looking at the clock. I'm not looking at the clock. So today is um, Easter Sunday for us, Resurrection Sunday. And I want to talk mostly about the resurrection today, but I, I don't want to leave out some of the other things that happened during that week that leads up to the resurrection. I want to speak to you, and I want you to listen and hear from two perspectives. One, that God is speaking his truth to you, for you, to strengthen you, to encourage you, to, to help you to stay firm and to stand and be resolute until the day when you actually consummate, finally consummate your salvation. Like that song that we sang today said, is resurrecting me, right? In one sense, you've been resurrected to life from death in Jesus Christ. But in another sense, he is resurrecting, continually resurrecting us, different parts of us as we give them over to him, as the spots and the wrinkles are rubbed out so that on that day he will present to himself a bride without spot or wrinkle. So one way I want you to hear this is for you. But the other way I want you, like this year gets to be for you and this year has to be for somebody else. Like we're going to have the Vodi thing on Wednesday, the Vodi Bakum, so you can so you can hear and you'll be stirred to have confidence that what you have in your Bible is true, and you don't have to you don't have to back up a step to anybody that would say otherwise. That you will have the cross and you'll have the resurrection to offer to the world because everybody got to hear it, and everybody needs it. Anybody that's going to be saved isn't going to be saved if they don't really understand the resurrection. It's that important. So. Let me just start with this scripture. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and it's verse 21. This, this kind of is the cross almost. He, he in this case, he is God the Father, made him, him is Jesus. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness, the righteousness of God in him. That, that's a summary of the cross right there. Jesus knew no sin. 
He never sinned, not one time. But he was tested and he was tempted. I was thinking about this. um, Gosh, what was the context? At the Passover, you know, in... um, in Egypt with Israel and, and he, they're to prepare a lamb, right? Get this lamb ready. He told them what to do with it, how to eat it, how to cook it. It all has to be eaten, what to do with the blood, everything to do that. This lamb prepared. And I thought, Jesus, right, is the lamb of God. How was he prepared to be sacrificed like that little lamb or goat that was used on the, uh, in Egypt for the Passover? And you know how he was prepared? He was prepared by being tested and tempted in every single way that any person would ever sin, had ever sinned. That was how he was prepared, like um, like the uh, prodigal son comes home and the dad is so happy and he says, somebody go, you know, kill the fatted calf. Well, he'd, he'd been waiting for a, a day when they were going to have this big celebration and they had this calf, this poor little chubby calf that was getting fattened up, getting ready for his day when he was going to be dinner for a big old feast. He was special. Jesus was prepared to be the perfect and spotless sacrificial lamb of God by testing and trials and suffering. And he only qualified because he didn't fail. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, that righteousness that you have in him is the righteousness of God. He's perfect and he's holy. There's no flaw, there's no error, there's no nothing in him that's anything but perfect and beautiful. That's our righteousness in Christ Jesus. It's the very righteousness of God. He made him that knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's what happened at the cross. When you said, Jesus, I make you Lord of my life, I give my life to you, and you said, Jesus, I trust 100% that you were the absolute and complete payment for my sin debt to God, what happened was your sin was put over there, his Righteousness, the very righteousness of God was imputed to you. Amen is right. Okay, so just a couple things at the cross. First, Jesus was sacrificed. He was offered as a sacrifice. When John the Baptist saw him, now this isn't, the scripture I'm going to read isn't the scripture I'm going to talk about for a second, but it's very interesting. If you read the scriptures about John the Baptist, he said, the one who sent me told me how I would know who the one was. It doesn't say who the one that sent him was, but it had to be God. God told him, here's how you're going to know when Messiah or Christ is there. And look at how he describes Jesus when he sees him coming, John the Baptist. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The, The picture from the... Passover, I I was going to preach this huge thing on the Passover. I took it all out. I'll do it some other time. But the Passover is so beautifully symbolic of Jesus, right? In the Passover, they were told, God told Moses, Moses told Israel, depending on the size of your family, you might have a a lamb or a goat or or you might be little, so two families could have a lamb or a goat. and, And here's what you do with it and you prepare it this way and you eat it this way. It has to all be eaten up. But the blood... You take the blood of that lamb and you take it with a hyssop branch, I think, 
and you thanks Ben <laughs> and, and and you take it and you put it across the the lintel the 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 cross piece of your door and you put it down on each side of your door on the doorpost because I am going to demonstrate God is going to demonstrate his power to Pharaoh and Pharaoh will bend his knee before God and the way he's going to do it is the firstborn son of all of everything that's in Egypt even like the cattle God's going to kill him the angel of death is going to come. But when the angel of death comes to your house, if, if you've applied the blood of that lamb to the doorpost and the lentil of your house, the angel of death will see that blood and will pass over your house. That's like two minutes of the Passover. Fast forward however many thousand years later, and here comes the lamb of God prepared for slaughter. And when it comes time, for the, I don't know, you know, metaphorically, the angel of death to grab you by the scruff of your neck and drag you to hell eternally, he's going to see, or not, the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of your heart. And when the blood is there, you don't go. The angel of death passes by you, and you go straight into heaven, and you spend your eternity with God. John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, said, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, the lamb might be kind of a cute title, but it didn't mean a very fun thing for Jesus. In John twelve twenty seven, Jesus himself, now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. Jesus himself understood himself to be that sacrificial lamb. Some people, when they, they hear about the Passion Week and, and the crucifixion and the resurrection, they're like, it's impossible for dead people to be raised. He wasn't really dead. In John nineteen thirty one through 37, you read this. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So, you know, here's all these these religious people and, and, and they didn't recognize Jesus as the Christ. And tomorrow's the Sabbath. It's their Passover celebration. It's a big deal. And these guys aren't dying fast enough. There's three of them on the cross, Jesus in the middle and these two thieves, one on either side of him. So they're like, come on, this thing needs to get done because we got to get ready for tomorrow because we can't do any of that work tomorrow. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. That's how they would get him to kill. See, the way you die on a cross is you suffocate. You're hanging there by the spikes in your wrists and the spikes in your feet. And because of the way your body is positioned, you can't breathe. You have to pull yourself up against those spikes in order for your diaphragm to be able to open your lungs so that you can take a breath. Well, these guys keep raising themselves up, and we want to be done with this. So the way they would hurry it up is they would break their legs. So they can't push up and actually get a breath, and then they suffocate and die. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. Now, this isn't John the Baptist. This is the Apostle John. This is one of the three that were in closest, most intimate relationship with Jesus, the one who placed his head on Jesus' chest. He's saying, listen, I watched this happen. And he who has seen has testified. And his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you 
also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says they shall look upon him whom they pierced. Years and years, decades and centuries before it was prophesied how he would die. And the spotless lamb of God that would be sacrificed for the sin of the world would not have one broken bone. They were breaking the bones of the three guys hanging on the cross, but they didn't break his bones. The, fi- the prophecy was fulfilled. They said that he would be run through. He would be pierced through. So just to be sure he was dead, they pierced him through. Now the heart, I think it's called the pericardium. I don't know. Somebody who's a nurse or a doctor might know better than me. But there's this sac around your heart, and it has a fluid that looks like water. And then your heart, of course, is full of blood. So that spear went right up through the pericardium into his heart and outran this blood and this water-looking stuff. Jesus was dead. He wasn't like in some suspended animation. He was dead, completely dead. And it's cool that he said that he would rise on the third day, not on the third minute, because somebody might say, well, you know, they beat on his chest or who knows what. When you're dead for three days, you're dead. Sorry, you're dead. I feel like a guy from Jersey. And then he was risen. And, and most always this, the, the account from Luke is read, but I, I'm going to just read from Matthew today. Matthew 28, 1 through 7. Now, after the Sabbath, right? So, so Thursday night he's captured. Friday he's hanging on the cross. Saturday is the Sabbath. So after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn towards the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred had occurred for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here for he has risen. Just as he said, come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. See, the resurrection is absolutely crucial to the Christian faith. If you, if you say, you know, I believe in Jesus and I've placed my trust in him as Savior. But this whole thing of resurrection, I mean, I seriously can't not quite wrap myself around that, that, then you need to question whether or not you're actually Christian. The resurrection is so important to Christianity. So then here in the church in Corinth, the apostle Paul, in one of his missionary journeys, he goes to this place called Corinth and he establishes a Christian church, one of the very first Christian churches in the world. And then he goes on and he establishes churches in other places, but he keeps in communication with these churches and, and the elders of the church are telling him what's going on in the church. And then he writes these letters. That's the epistles that we have in the Bible, these letters back to the churches to help them to deal with the things that are going on. In this case, a false teaching had come. So 1 Corinthians um, 1 through 14, I've given it to you, Caitlin, in chunks. I'm, I'm going to break it in chunks, but it's basically 1 through 14. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which you also, excuse me, by which also you are saved, big word here, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. So Paul is reiterating that I brought you the gospel. It's a true gospel. It's the gospel that you're standing in and standing on, and it's the gospel by which you are saved. 
if in fact you stand firm in that which you first believed. Because what was happening is someone was coming in with a gospel that's different and they were being, sorry, they were being tempted to believe something different than the gospel that Paul had preached to them. That if is really important. If we don't stand in the truth that is the true gospel, then we're not standing on anything and we aren't in Christ Jesus. These teachers were preaching that there is no resurrection. That was the false gospel that Paul was going to deal with in this part of his letter to the church in um, Corinth. In in, uh, 1 Peter 3.15, we're exhorted, maybe you could argue commanded, to always be ready to make a defense for the hope that is inside of us. At its base level, if you boiled it all down to its very base level, that hope is... Christ risen, me risen in Christ. That Christ has risen, and because he has risen, I have hope to be risen again in him. That's the defense that you make. Now, you make it with more than just those words, but that's what he's talking about. And that's why it's so important what Paul is going to tell the church at Corinth, that you hang on to what you believed at first. Otherwise, your faith was in vain. Okay, now, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance... What I also received, now, and he received a direct revelation from Christ himself. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He died, he was buried in the tomb, he was raised according to the scriptures. It's so important. We have not just a risen Christ, we have a prophesied risen Christ. We have for thousands, for centuries before any of this happened, we have the prophetic word that was made true. It was a prophecy. It was proven true in the resurrection. Paul, when he went and taught, when he went to the the different cities and he starts to teach, he teaches the resurrected Christ from the Old Testament scriptures. There was no New Testament for him to work from. He had to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ based upon the prophecies that were in the Old Testament. According to the scriptures. I taught you of first importance, the risen Christ, according to the scriptures. I don't know much about Buddhism, and I don't know much about Sikhism, and I don't know much about Islam. I don't know much about all the other world religions, but I know this. They don't have a resurrected Christ. They don't have a prophesied resurrected Christ that I can hang my hat on and put my hope in the faith and the belief that if he was resurrected, I can be resurrected as well. Verse 5. It's always funny to me. Peter gets a new name, or Cephas gets a new name. He's going to be called Peter now. And everybody calls him Peter except Paul. For some reason, he's always Cephas to Paul. I don't know if he's just jamming him or what, but it's funny to me that he calls him Cephas. According to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also, me being the apostle Paul. So he's trying to get these guys to understand the resurrected Christ is real. He appeared to Cephas. He appeared to this one, to this one, 
to 500, was that in this or is it later? 500, 500 people at one time. You're like, hey, listen, Jesus is risen. No, he's not yet. I mean, there's 499 other people that were there. What did you see? I saw the risen Jesus. Well, what did you see? How do you deny that kind of a testimony? If you wonder about whether or not he truly, come on, really, he was risen on the third day. Mm, 500 people in one place saw him. See, one of the things I struggled with in my early walk with the Lord was people would say, blah, blah, blah. And I'd say, well, how do you know? And they'd say, because the Bible tells me. I'm like, well, you can't use the Bible to prove the Bible. Cut it out. Give me something else. But what I've come to understand is the Bible is not like a, a marketing brochure, a glossy that you give somebody to sell your product. The Bible is a historical document written over millennium that if you take the time to read it and ask the Holy Spirit to give you understanding, it's the tightest darn thing you'll ever read. It's, a, it's incredible. So it's not like the Bible is saying it like it's a marketing document. It's a history document. Vody Bakum today, he talked about people that say, well, you, you know, your, your, your book was written. It was, it was modified by these, these monks somewhere to get people to believe stuff that's not true. And he goes through this process of, of demonstrating how that can't be possible. 6,000 copies. Ancient copies. How do the monks get all those copies? The Bible is probably, they say that the scriptures are the most um, trustworthy writings in all of antiquity. There's writings from, from ages ago that people don't even question that there might have been three copies that were hundreds and hundreds of years later. But we have copies, actual copies, within the lifetime of the people that actually witnessed Jesus. When he says this stuff happened, it happened. And he's telling people, he's not afraid to tell them, listen, 500 people at one time, most of them aren't even dead yet. You could go find them and you could find out for you. He's not hiding behind anything because it's true. Verse nine, for I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do, we, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no res resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. He's like, we preached this to you. You received it and believed. Now all of a sudden, you're questioning this thing. If he hasn't been raised, if there is no resurrection, and not even Jesus has been raised, then your faith that you placed it's vain faith. It's, 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 it holds on to nothing. It's of no value to you. Later on, he says, like, we're, we're the most to be pitied of all because we're running around being good guys while everybody else is having a fleshly good time. And it's all for a waste if there's no resurrection. We might as well live fast, die young, and leave a good-looking corpse if there's no resurrection. no resurrection, no eternal life. If no resurrection, Jesus was not sinless. Your spotless lamb of God outside the resurrection had a spot. 
I know I've said this a lot lately, but I want you to know it and believe it and be confident to say it. The Bible teaches us the wages of sin is death. If you have sin, one sin or a million sins, your wage is death. Physical death, eternal death. That principle applied to Jesus just as much as it does to any one of us. How do we know that Jesus never sinned? How do we know that one time he didn't do something when nobody was looking? Because he was risen. He couldn't have been risen if he had a sin because he would have had to pay the wage of sin. He'd still be in there, one decomposed, whatever comes after 2,000 years of being dead in the tomb. That's what you'd have. You wouldn't have a resurrected, glorified king on a throne. You'd have a guy who stayed dead because he was a sinner. We know because he rose that he never sinned. And we place our faith in his sacrifice. We can do it because he was perfect and sinless, and we know it because he was resurrected. It doesn't require just blind faith, right? All these eyewitnesses. A um, couple more things that would just help us to understand. Luke 18, 31 through 33. Jesus here. Then he, Jesus, took the 12 aside and said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets, all these for hundreds and hundreds, for centuries before that have been written about the Son of Man, about me, Jesus, will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. All of that happened. All of it happened. John uh, 2, excuse me, John 2, 18 through 20. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us is your authority for doing these things? Now, he's just come into Jerusalem. You know, everybody lays the palm branches down, and he's on a little donkey. Uh, they're all so giving big parade, Jesus. You know, a few days later, they say, crucify him, crucify him. He goes to the temple. One of the prophecies was that, that the temple was to be his father's house of prayer, not a marketplace. So he goes in and he's turning over the tables and he, he makes a little whip and he's creating a big mess for all these guys there. And they're saying, hey, what gives you the authority to do this? Give us a sign. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews, the Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? Well, later we find out he's talking about the temple of his body, right? We are the temple of God if we're in Christ Jesus because the spirit of God dwells inside of us. The temple was still there, but Jesus was the temple of God because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. So he was prophesying his own death. I'll give you a sign. Just like he said, I'll give you a sign, the sign of Jonah. On the third day, the whale spits out Jonah. It's a type of Jesus. He says, tear down this temple, which they would do. They would do it with the scourging. They would do it with spitting. They would do it with the thing. They would do it with punching him. They would do it with nailing him on the cross. And on the third day, the temple would be rebuilt and you'll get to see it. He prophesied not only his death, but the manner of his death, the manner leading up to his death. He prophesied his resurrection. He prophesied when it would happen, all according to the scriptures. Acts 2 22 through 32. This is a really beautiful course of scripture. This is the day of Pentecost. All of a sudden, 
right? The Bible says nobody comes to the son unless they're drawn by the father. All of a sudden, all these people were screaming, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Their eyes get opened. And Peter's like, you crucified the Christ. You killed him. And they're like, ah, what do we do? That's kind of the sermon that he's preaching. He says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Boy, that's an important point right there. People argue that, that Jesus did that stuff because he was God, and he was. But he didn't do the powerful miracles as God. He did them as a man full of the Holy Spirit. And this scripture right here testifies to that. Those things that you saw him do were done by God through him. Philippians says that he, I don't remember the right word, denied, didn't access his deity, but came as a man in the flesh, humbled himself. So when you see Jesus doing miracles, you say, oh man, I could never do that. If you got the Holy Spirit, you sure can. God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Why? Why was it impossible? Because he didn't sin. It couldn't hold him. Death had no hold on him. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor will your Holy One undergo decay. Holy One is Jesus. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now, Peter speaking again, brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet, God speaking through him, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay, this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Peter, from the prophecy to the Jews, spoke to them about Jesus, about their Messiah, or the Greeks would use this, the word the Christ, the anointed one, the one who was prophesied to come. He spoke through the prophecies. And if you don't believe the prophecies, I saw it myself. I witnessed testimony to them. Each of the four Gospels, written by four different people, Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel, which is, which is supposed to actually be Peter's gospel, that, 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 that Mark's gospel was actually dictated by Peter. Luke, Luke was a smart guy. He was a well-educated man. They say he was a physician. He, he was commissioned, maybe, I think, I don't know, commissioned or if he just went back and did it, by some important guy named Theophilus who had been taught all this stuff about Jesus. And this smart guy, this physician Luke, he goes off and he investigates. 
He looks to see. He interviews those 500 people, and he, and he asks these questions, and he hears this one tell it, and he hears that one tell it, and he hears that one tell it, and he writes what we know as the Gospel of Luke to this guy named Theophilus so that Theophilus might know that the things that he was taught are true. He goes on then to write the book of Acts. Again, for Theophilus, look at here's what happened. Here's a history of the church once it's born. All four Gospels tell the same story, written by Matthew, by Mark or Peter, Mark and Peter, by Luke, and by the Apostle John. Secular historians testify to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not religious guys, not guys with an agenda to try to build a church. Secular historians don't argue with the truth of those Gospels. Hundreds of witnesses, 500 of which having seen him at one time. Let me read to you just one last compelling story. I'll wrap you up and get you out of here before 3.30. John chapter 20. I, I just, I, I so much, I wish I would have put in here John chapter 1. When you get home, open your Bibles up and read John chapter 1. And read the passion with which John, who laid his head on Jesus' chest, he says, listen, we saw him, we touched him, we heard him, we know it's true. That's this guy. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, he's speaking of that Sunday, the resurrection, when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, where do you get the phrase, oh, you're just a doubting Thomas. It's him right here, this guy, Thomas. But Thomas, one of the 12, called Didymus, because everybody in the Bible has got to have at least two names to confuse me. But Thomas, one of the 12, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to him, unless I see his hands and the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. This is one of the, this guy was with Jesus all this time. He was told, he knew the prophecies. Jesus himself prophesied. He's like, eh, I know what you're saying. I'm not believing it. I'm going to need to actually touch that before I'm going to believe. Now, he, he must have seen the crucifixion, right? Because he's going to know what to look for. He's looking for the holes in the wrists. He's looking for the puncture wound in his side. Goes on, verse 26. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here with your hand. And put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Come on is right. Here's a guy, he watched him. He couldn't get over the hump. I'm not believing unless I actually could touch the holes in his body. 
my Lord and my God. Man, it moves me. John goes on and he says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. I wrote this book because I saw him. I walked with him. I saw the miracles. I saw the food being multiplied. I was in the boat and somebody screamed, hey, it's a ghost, it's a ghost walking across the lake. Ah! It's like, no, don't be worried, it's me, Jesus. Oh, it's a big storm. Peace be still, no more storm. I saw this stuff and I wrote down this, what you have to read. That isn't all of it. He says later, if I'd have written it all down, the world couldn't contain the books that testify to the truth about Jesus being the Christ. So I wrote you these. Hopefully these are enough for you that you might believe and in believing you might have eternal life. I had this thought. What if, like what if this room encompassed all of the people of the world, like we're them, all of them, and none of you guys ever had a sin, but I did, I had one. I had one sin. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Not to judge the world, but that the world, but what if the world was just me? I'm the only one. Would he have been incarnate? Would he have humbled himself from his throne to a man? He would have. Why? Because his love is perfect. His desire that none would perish, but that all would come to saving knowledge of Jesus would have been for me or for any of you if if it was just one. But the amazing thing is the accumulation of every sin that had ever been committed up to that time, that was being committed literally at that time, that would be committed all the way until time ended, required the perfect and spotless Lamb of God to bear the wrath of God for sin. But if it was just my one sin, it would have been no different. He'd have had to live a perfect life. He'd have had to be flogged and spat upon and, and ridiculed and made fun of and jammed the thing in his head and a beard pulled out of his face and the meat ripped off his back and nailed to the cross and resurrected because one sin is all the sin and all the sin is one sin. It's transgression against God. How awesome is that? It's just one, Dad. I mean, come on. The one, you know who the one was? Judas, if it was going to be one that didn't have a chance, almost seems like it, that was him. Everybody else. I'm not even making that as a, I mean, put that out of your head. I think that might not have been a good thing to say. It says it was prophesied, the son of perdition, right? I mean, he was given over to his own thing. It was prophesied. But if any one person had only one sin ever, all of that had to happen for reconciliation to be available to that one person that had that one sin second corinthians 521 again and i'm almost done he made him he the father made him the son lord jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we we might become the actual righteousness of god in lord jesus first peter 1 18 and 19 For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed 
from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. All of Christian hope boils down to two facts. First fact, Jesus was the complete and sufficient sacrifice for the sin of all mankind. Nothing else required. He was 100% sufficient. When he was offered and you placed your trust in him, it was done. You can't add anything to it and have it be done. It, It gets undone when you do that. That's what happened to the Galatians if they had taken on circumcision. It's, it's everything that's necessary. I told you that, that someday I would talk to you about propitiation. Let me just take a minute and talk about it. There's, there's two words scripturally that kind of define what happens when he was sacrificed and you trusted in it. He became the propitiatory offering for your sin before God. But there's a second word called expiation. Propitiation includes expiation. But in some translations, they use the word expiation. In other translations, they use the atoning sacrifice. What it means is this. When Jesus was offered for your sin and mine, God accepted it. And you were expiated. Your sin was expiated. It was, it was atoned for. It was paid for. Propitiation says that because it was atoned for, God is now pleased with you. It not only paid the the debt for the sin, but it brought you into a pleasing place in his sight. Jesus alone as sacrifice was the full propitiation for our sin debt to God. First thing. Second thing that the Christian faith boils down to is that he was truly raised from the dead. Both are true. History verifies the second, that he was raised from the dead, and the second verifies the first. People would then say, well, if that's all true, then everybody goes to heaven. But it's not true in that context. I got in a big stink here on a Wednesday night because somebody asked me, Pat, is the blood of Jesus sufficient for everything? I said, yes and no. How can you say the blood of Jesus isn't sufficient for everything? It's the applied blood of Jesus that's sufficient for everything. If you had found the perfect little lamb in Egypt as a Jew, and you had killed it the way it was supposed to be killed, and quartered it the way it was supposed to be quartered, and cooked it the way it was supposed to be cooked, and ate it the way he told you to eat it, and everything else was right, but you didn't put the blood of that lamb on the doorpost of your house? The angel of death did not pass you by. Why is it that everybody won't be saved? Because not everybody will apply the blood of the lamb to the doorposts of their hearts. Humble them before him and take the gift that's been offered to them. The resurrection matters if you apply the blood of Jesus. Now, If you've not, the applying of the blood of Jesus is something you must do to be saved. You must trust in Jesus as the absolute full debt payment. Your sin is covered in his sacrifice alone. Nothing else needs to be done. And you need to offer him your life just as he offered his life for you. And you would confess him to be Lord over your life. 
if that's the position of your heart, sincerely, that's how a person comes into a saving relationship with God eternally. But just like Paul said at the beginning of this thing, unless that your faith be in vain, you need to hold fast to that which you were given at the beginning. So anybody who may be in that place right now, you need to make sure that you come. You, I mean, I offer myself to you. Everybody's got my phone number. Call me. Let's make sure that it's clear so that when you make that profession of faith to the Lord, that you actually did it. You didn't ask him into your heart and believe yourself to be saved. You offered your life to him and you trusted in him for you. Amen? Amen. Well, we just praise you, Lord, that you didn't succumb. It says that you were perfected in suffering. Bible teaches us that you had to be tempted and tested in every way that any man would and fail, but yet you didn't fail. And because of your testing and because of your tempting, we can boldly approach the throne of grace and find mercy and grace in our time of need. So we praise you because you are praiseworthy. We thank you because you were the perfect and spotless lamb sacrificed for the sin of all mankind. We thank you that because of your perfection, you were raised. And it's in your resurrection that the hope of our resurrection lives. We praise you in this day. And Lord, I ask a blessing over each and every one of us. I ask that each and every one of us would continue to go from glory to glory into the very likeness of Jesus Christ, our Lord. In his name, amen. God bless you all on our Easter Sunday.